Now, about eight days after these things, he took with them Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting with, from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, be with us now by your Spirit. Be with the preacher. Be with those who are hearing God's word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I hope everyone has had a good rest. Everyone ate some good food, at least, and uh, it's nice to be fed spiritually and then come home and then be hungry physically, (laughs) and you get to uh, eat and you get to think about uh, God's Word um, as you eat and and all that. Um, One of the things that we want to consider this evening is another grand moment in the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, If you were here last Sunday evening, we spoke about the miracles of Christ. And the miracles of Christ, I hope what you have learned last week, is that uh, it's not merely about the miracle itself. Uh, The miracle always points to something beyond it. So physical sight, the healing of someone's sight points to the healing of their spiritual sight. The healing of one's uh, hunger uh, points to their, their, their spiritual hungerness and, their, and them being spiritually hunger for, hungry for, for God and for truth. Um, and what we see in the miracles of Christ is, again, it's pointing to him being the Messiah, him being the one who was promised long ago. But also, when we consider the spiritual aspect of the miracles, it points to Jesus being our Savior, Him being the one who will not simply help us physically. And that was many of the, much of the, the problems with the Israelites during the day, is they thought the Messiah was going to, to allow them to prosper physically. But Jesus came, he's a Messiah, he's a Savior that uh, heals spiritually, right? And each one of the miracles that we considered uh, is to help us look beyond merely a supernatural event to that grand supernatural event, which will be the resurrection, in which all those who have placed their faith in Christ by the Spirit are resurrected or will be resurrected as well. And there is an already not yet 
uh, aspect of the resurrection, is there not? That we have already in Christ a resurrection. It just hasn't happened yet. And that's how we ought to think of the, the miracles of Christ. And we are considered the, the grand miracle that God has given to us, that he has granted us faith. He's granted us repentance. Even this morning, learning about the legalism and those who truly are regenerate, those who truly love God, say that they love God's word. That's also a miracle from God. That's a great benefit of being a Christian, that you love God and his law with your heart, but also in your obedience. So tonight, we want to consider, a, 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 as Ian Hamilton says, an epochal moment in the life of Christ. There are many epochal moments in the life of Christ. The virgin birth, the baptism of Christ, the temptation of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's seen there um, at his death, at his resurrection, his ascension. But the transfiguration is a grand epochal moment in the life and ministry of Christ. And I wonder... How much thought have you ever put into the transfiguration of Christ? When we think about the many things that Christ has done in his life, the many events that might happen or that happened in the life of Christ, as we're reading our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's not recorded in John, but I, what I think what John does is he testifies to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. When we think about what Christ has done in his life, where do we rank, where do we put the transfiguration of Jesus Christ? So this evening, I want to consider the transfiguration of Christ in our series in Christology. And I think, I'm not sure, I think I have five points, maybe four, but um, they're somewhat short, and we're just going to take this, this scene, um, look at some of the implications, what's going on, what it means for not only... Uh, in the, not only what it means for Jesus, but also what it means for us, right? Um, so let's consider the first point, and that is the setting. Uh, the setting. If you're there in Luke 9, you can just keep your Bibles open there. Luke 9, verse 28 says this. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Now, in order for us to understand the transfiguration and what happens in this event, like all things, we must know the background. We must know what, what's going on, the, the events that are leading up to the transfiguration. And that's how any good biblical theologian uh, reads their Bible. In fact, any good Christian. They are to understand the context, understand the background of what's happening. Notice Luke says, about eight days after these sayings. Now, this begs the question, what are these sayings that Luke is referring to? Luke says, after eight days, after these sayings, this happens. So what are these sayings that Luke is referring to? Well, Luke is referring to all of what Jesus has said leading up to the transfiguration. All the things that Jesus has said leading up to the transfiguration. And there's Three sayings uh, in particular that help us understand better the transfiguration. The first saying was recorded for us in Luke 9, verses 18 through 20. It reads, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. 
And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter answered, the Christ of God. The second saying is recorded for us in verses 21 and 22 of that same chapter. It reads, and he, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And the third saying is found for us in verses 23 and 27 to 27. It reads, and he said to all, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would lose, save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses, and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. These three sayings of Peter's confession that's found in verses 18 through 20, Jesus' prediction in verses 21 and 22, and Jesus explaining the conditions of discipleship create for us the context of the transfiguration. In verses of all of these, uh, in order for us to understand properly the transfiguration, we must understand what's happening from verses 18 to 27 of Luke 9. Because all of these things are seen at the transfiguration. Christ asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter responds rightly, you are the Christ of God. You are the son of the living God. Well, what happens at the transfiguration? He sees the son of God in all of his glory. He says in verses 21 and 22 that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. The disciples don't want to hear it. But what happens at the transfiguration? A voice comes. The Father says, this is my Son. Listen to him. And then also we see verses 21 and 27 fulfilled as well or, 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 or exemplified. Where the glory of the Son is seen, the glory of the Father is seen as the Father comes in that glory cloud. So you might ask, what is the point of knowing the background of these sayings? Well, it teaches us that the transfiguration is not a random event. That the transfiguration is an intentional event. That the transfiguration must not be divorced from what's happened prior, but also what's going to happen in the following chapters. It's an event that must be seen in the entirety of God's redemptive story. Just as we learned last week concerning the miracles of Christ, how we aren't to divorce the miracles from God's redemptive uh, story, right? They all play into God's redemptive story. Well, the transfiguration as well plays into God's redemptive story. So that is the background for the transfiguration. But another question that arises is, 
But where exactly does this event take place? Where does this event take place? We know the background, but where does it take place? And Luke says in verse 28, it takes place on a mountain. A mountain. And in the Bible, if you've ever read the Bible from cover to cover, you will notice quickly that very significant things happen on a mountain. The Garden of Eden, it is said that it sat on a mountain. Abraham shows his willingness to sacrifice Isaac and then encounters God on a mountain. God appears to Moses and speaks to him from the burning bush on Horeb, the mountain of God. The mount, uh, on Mount Sinai, Moses ascends in a cloud to meet God. The law is delivered from a mountain. Elijah does his best work on a mountain. It was on a mountain that Jesus refuted Satan's temptations. He ascended into a mountain from the Mount of Olives as he ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus did. Jesus preached the greatest sermon ever preached on a mountain. So when we read in Luke 9 that Jesus took a few of his disciples up a mountain, that should immediately grab our attention because only significant things happen on a mountain. Let's consider the second point, and that is the three witnesses. Again, verse 28 says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to a mountain to pray. Now one question that arises from verse 28 is, why does Jesus choose Peter, James, and John? Why does Jesus choose only Peter, James, and John? Why didn't Jesus take all of his disciples up? But why only Peter, James, and John? Well, some have... Uh, come up with various theories that Peter, James, and John might be considered what is known as Jesus' inner circle. Those are the ones that are closest to Jesus. I personally don't buy that argument, um, but that's one theory. Some have argued that uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John because they best represent the disciples as a whole. What they mean by that is Peter was the oldest, and John was the youngest. So in terms of age, they represent the disciples. I think a better reason why Jesus took Peter, James, and John is because of what Deuteronomy 19.15 says. It reads, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on the account of any, uh, any, anything or any sin that he's committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. That is one of the reasons I think it's plausible why Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Because in order for one to validate what they're saying, two or three witnesses must be present. But I think the best reason why Jesus chose Peter, James, and John is to encourage and strengthen their faith. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up a mountain to pray and ultimately to see this great event to help and strengthen and encourage their faith. Remember what these disciples have just heard from the mouth of Christ. That the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and he must be killed, he must suffer. And think about the emotions that might be going on in their minds. That this man whom I have given all of my life to, I have left everything for. I've been following him for three years and now he's telling me that he must suffer and die. 
Think about what they think of who the Messiah is to be. The Messiah is not to be one who is to suffer and die. The Messiah is one who's supposed to be a political conqueror. He's supposed to rule with a, with a mighty fist, sit on the, the throne of David. This is not who we envisioned that the Messiah would be. But Jesus also says he will rise from the dead. You see, they're focusing merely on, I'm going to die, and not the, but I'm going to rise again part. And the transfiguration gives to his disciples reason to hope for the latter. That yes, although the former, I must suffer and die, is something that should strike them at their heart. They also should be overwhelmed with joy and encouragement because Jesus says that I will rise from the dead. But ultimately, what we can say is Jesus is chose Peter, James, and John because he's displaying something about who he is. When we think about Jesus Christ, we tend to think that he is the Messiah, which he is, that he is the great prophet, priest, and king, which he is, that he is the eternal Son of God, which he is. But we must not forget that Jesus Christ is a pastor. That Jesus Christ is the great pastor of the church. Just as he's the great deacon of the church. He's the great pastor of the church. And what we see in Jesus taking these three disciples up this mountain to pray is that he's showing his pastoral heart. He's showing his pastoral care because he knows what they are going through. He knows what's in their minds. And to help, I guess, maybe uh, relieve their stress a little bit, he takes them up a mountain to show them the greatest thing that they will ever see in their lifetime. Now notice that Jesus doesn't take these, his disciples up to a mountain to pr- to just to... To, to preach another sermon. That's what Jesus commonly did with his disciples, that he would go up to a mountain and he would teach and he would preach to them. Jesus doesn't preach to them a sermon here. And they might have thought that. That here we go again, we're going to go up to this mountain and we're just going to pray and then he's going to teach us some things. But rather, we see a visible sermon on display. And Jesus pulls back the veil and shows them something about who he is. Let's consider what Christ shows them in the third point, and that is the transfiguration. Look at verse 29. It says, and, he, um, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Now imagine that scene. If there is any time when you read the Bible where we are to just stop and with our best imaginations think about what's happening, this would be one of the moments. I mean, vivid imagery that the Bible gives to us here, that Christ's appearance was altered, his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Now, notice the text says, while Jesus was praying, he was transformed. And what this simply means is for a moment, the glory of Christ was put on display. It was as if the veil of the holy of holies was just ever so slightly moved to the side. And just for a brief moment, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus Christ 
before he took on flesh. Imagine that. All they've ever known is Jesus Christ, the man. Going up the mountain, they saw the backside of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, or Luke 9 says, that they fell asleep while praying. And then they wake up and see this, this, this appearance of one whose face is shining like the sun. The transfiguration is almost alike into the picture that John gives to us in Revelation 1.16. That in his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth came a, a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. None of us, even with the best glasses on, can see the sun directly shining in full strength. So imagine the glory of Jesus Christ as this event takes place. This is sort of what Peter, James, and John saw. They saw the glory that laid behind the outward vesture of the true humanity of Christ. It was as if if you take the true humanity of Christ and if you just poked one, two, three little holes through it, the glory of Christ is bursting through. Now, when we consider the glory of Christ and him transforming into this, this uh, the glory transforming into this, 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 this way, uh, that doesn't mean that Jesus transformed into something that he wasn't prior. It doesn't mean that Jesus transformed into something that he wasn't already. Rather, Jesus Christ was transformed into what was already there. You see, when the eternal Son took on flesh, what he did was the brightness of his glory was veiled by his human nature. Think of maybe a pot or that's, that's you know, a pretty thick pot that's black that covers a light. You, you can't see the light anymore. That's a liken to what, it, what happened in the incarnation. The, the eternal, the brightness and the radiance of the sun's glory was veiled. It wasn't left on the throne of grace. He never removed it because God can't remove his glory. But he can veil it in order for us to see him in an accommodated way, in an accommodated form. The transfiguration of Christ helps us answer the question that Jesus gave to his disciples. It helps answer the question that uh, Harold asks, who is this man? Isn't that what Jesus asked the disciples? Who do you say the Son of Man is? And what we see at the transfiguration, Jesus shows who he is. And at this time, he is not the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who men hid their faces from. Peter, James, and John had to hide their face because they could not look directly at the Son's glory. Now let's consider the fourth point, and that is the two witnesses. Verse 30 say this, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Now, to set the scene for us, what we have is Peter, James, and John are asleep right now. They fell asleep praying, which 
ultimately points to their spiritual soul. They're spiritually dull. But they fall asleep praying, and Jesus transformed, and the glory that he's always had is bursting through. He's shining like the sun in its full strength, and and standing beside him are those two great Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah. Now, this again begs the question, why Moses and Elijah? Why not maybe Adam and Abraham, right? Why not Isaiah and Malachi? Maybe Enoch and Eve, I don't know. But why Moses and Elijah? Now, there are a number of reasons why Moses and Elijah are there. And it could take me a whole, I can do a whole sermon just on the various reasons and go into the Old Testament and all that. But I think the most significant reason why Moses and Elijah are on the mountain with Jesus Christ is because of what they represent. What they represent. Moses is the great lawgiver. In fact, the scriptures refer to the law as the law of Moses. Not that it's Moses' law, it's God's law. But the law comes through the mediation of Moses. Elijah is an Old Testament prophet who some consider to be the greatest of Old Testament prophets. Elijah and Moses, to summarize it, represent the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Which means, ultimately, that these two men represent the Old Testament. These two men represent the Old Testament. Testament. One writer has said when Moses and Elijah were on the mountain with Jesus, it was as if all the Old Testament stood up and said, we find our fulfillment in him. And as these two great figures of the Old Testament are on the mountain with Christ, notice what verse 31 says about what they were doing there. This is remarkable. It reads, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They're not talking about what heaven is like. They're not talking about the great things that happened in the Old Testament. But they're talking about his departure. Here Luke says that Moses and Elijah showed up on the mountain with the glorified Christ to speak about what's, what's going to happen in the coming days as Christ enters and makes his way to Jerusalem. They were discussing with Christ what he was going to accomplish. Think about that. The two great figures of the Old Testament are speaking to the great figure of all of the Bible about the events that are going to happen. In other words, Moses and Elijah... And hear me now, Moses and Elijah are speaking to Christ about his death, resurrection, and ascension. Moses and Elijah are speaking to Christ about his death, 
resurrection, and ascension. We know that because Luke uses the word departure. He says they're speaking to Jesus about his departure. Now, that's an interesting word to use, departure, because in the original Greek, that word is translated as exodus. So when we read that Moses and Elijah are speaking to Christ, they're speaking to Christ about his exodus. Now think about that. Moses, who in the Old Testament had his own exodus. He was the one who led his people out of the land of Egypt. And he's speaking to Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, who will accomplish a greater exodus, who will lead his people out of the slave market of sin. Moses is the one who led his people out of the land of Egypt, crossing over the Red Sea. And he's speaking to Jesus Christ, the one who will leap into the deep sea of God's wrath for God's people. What Moses is saying here is that what I accomplished in the Old Testament was a small picture of what Jesus will accomplish in the New Testament. The old exodus that we read prefigures and it points to this grand spiritual exodus that Jesus Christ will do on the behalf of his people. Moses here is testifying to the fact that his exodus was a foretaste of Christ's exodus. That he is no one, but Christ is greater. Moses is representing the saving work of Christ at this moment. But what about Elijah? Elijah doesn't necessarily have a grand exodus moment like Moses. So what does he represent? Well, Elijah represents the ascension of Christ. The ascension of Christ. When, when Jesus Christ is, goes up bodily to heaven, the ascension of Christ. Other than Enoch, what other figure in the Old Testament was taken up bodily to heaven? Elijah. Elijah did not see death. Elijah didn't see a grave. Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind and was taken to heaven. Elijah, what we see in his ascension to heaven, prefigures Christ's ascension to heaven. Him not tasting death prefigures Christ and him going up to heaven. So why Moses and Elijah? Because they best represent the events that will take place when Christ goes to Jerusalem. His death, resurrection, and his ascension. And these two saints were on the mountain with the glorified Christ. And we read that Peter, James, and John suddenly wake up from falling asleep. And Peter, in typical Peter fashion, puts his foot in his mouth. And he says what he shouldn't say. I mean, Peter... He reminds me of, if you ever watched the movie, he reminds me of the godfather, Sonny. You know, when Vito looks at Sonny and says, 
what, what are you doing? You never talk out of place. Never, never talk when you are, when you are uh, uh, said not to talk, right? Peter says in verse 33, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He says, look at what's happening here. Look at this grand event. Now, there's two things that Peter is doing. First, Peter is being selfish. Because he says, forget my brothers down there. Let's build a kingdom here. We have Elijah. We got Moses. We got Jesus. Let's set up three tents. Let's just live here. We ain't got to worry about those eight disciples down there. And also him knowing all the things that Jesus Christ told him that he must do. That he must suffer and die. He says, we don't have to do all that. We can just stay up here. But also, we see that, G, that Peter, in saying, let's set up three tents, he's marginalizing, he's downplaying the deity of Christ. When he says, let's build three tents, what he's essentially doing is he's putting on par Jesus with Moses and Elijah. He's saying, Moses and Elijah are on your level. So let's make three tents. He's marginalizing and he's downplaying who Jesus Christ is. He doesn't realize that Moses and Elijah are not there to show that they are equal with Jesus, but rather they are there to show that Jesus is superior over them. He's so blind. I think, personally, he is caught up more in seeing Elijah and Moses rather than seeing Jesus. Moses and Elijah are there to show that all of their work is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Peter's suggestion reveals the weakness of his spiritual soul, that he saw the glory of the Son of God, He just confessed that you are the Son of God. And by his words, he's lessening the glory of the Son of God. And while Peter is marginalizing the superabounding excellency of Christ, that's A.W. Pink's favorite phrase, a voice from heaven appears. Verse 35, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. Peter has said, forget those eight disciples. Let's set up shop on this mountain. And then a cloud comes and hovers over them. And this is, from a biblical theological standpoint, this is the glory cloud that we see in the Old Testament. It it overshadows Peter, James, and John, Jesus, uh, Elijah, and Moses. The Father is in the cloud. And he says, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. The Father, once again, is declaring his, his, his undying love to his son. He's, he's reassuring his son that he takes delight in his obedience. He's speaking to the, the weakness and frail humanity of Jesus Christ and reassuring him that he loves him. That he, that he takes great delight in him, but also he's speaking to Peter, James, and John. Listen to him. 
The story ends in verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Saints, what are some of the takeaways from this event in the life of Christ? Well, first and foremost, the transfiguration of Christ testifies to Christ's divinity. The transfiguration of Christ testifies, it speaks to the divinity of Jesus Christ. The glory that the Son shared with the Father in the ages of eternity is the same glory that penetrated the human nature of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ here reveals not in merely his miracles and not merely in his resurrection and not merely by his words, but he shows that he is the eternal son of the eternal God. Secondly, the transfiguration is a sign that Jesus is the Messiah. The transfiguration is a sign that Jesus is the Messiah. Leading up to this event, Jesus had been telling his disciples of his coming suffering and death. He's telling them that he must go, he must suffer, and he must die. But his disciples did not want to, to, to hear it. They almost muted out the things that Jesus was telling them. They couldn't understand that the Messiah must suffer and die. Disciples could not reconcile Christ's messianic fulfillment with the prospect of his suffering. So in the transfiguration, Jesus is revealed to, him, to them in all of his glory so that they might see and be assured that he is who they already confessed him to be, the Son of God. And lastly, the transfiguration was to show that all of the Old Testament was being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The transfiguration is to show that all of the Old Testament is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Remember, the Father says, This is my Son, my chosen. Listen to him. Now stay with me here. What are Moses and Elijah? The prophets. And what was Israel's obligation to a prophet? They must listen to the prophets. All of what the prophets say. So in the transfiguration, the Father is declaring that Jesus Christ is the final prophet. Because he says, not listen to Moses, not listen to Elijah, listen to him. Listen to Jesus Christ. You don't need to listen to Elijah. You don't need to listen to Moses. You need to listen to Jesus Christ. Isn't this what the writer of the book of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2? Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That verse right there, those two verses, go hand in hand when we consider what the Father says from heaven, who he's saying it to, Jesus Christ, and who's standing next to Christ, the great prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. 
So friends, these are the three takeaways that we are to walk away with when we consider the story of the transfiguration. But in closing, how should we live in light of this lesson? How should we live in light of this lesson? Well, as we consider the transfiguration of Christ, there's two things that this event teaches us. And these, are, these, these two things, one of them is one that we are all guilty of. Every single day, every single time we leave this sermon, service, even right now as this sermon is going forth. The first is a warning, and the second is a great hope. First, we see in the transfiguration a great warning. Peter and James and John saw the glory of Christ. Just stop there. Peter, James, and John saw the glory of Christ. A scene that I'm sure replayed in their minds time and time again. But saints, the sad reality is that even being a witness to such event did not cure their dull heart. Peter, James, and John saw the glory of the Son of God, but, but if you read on, in just a few days, weeks maybe, they all will deny that they even knew Jesus Christ. They saw the glory of Christ, and then in a few days and weeks, they deny that they even knew the man. They all are ashamed to say that I have followed, I have walked, I have been taught by, I have ate with that man. The sufferings of Christ in just a few days will blot out the memory that they had of seeing the glory of Christ. And saints, I am guilty of being just like these men. The Lord in his kindness and in his mercy and grace at times gives to us a glimpse of the glory, does he not? Maybe at times when you are reading a scripture, maybe at times when you are hearing a sermon, maybe the one that Pastor Antonio preached this morning or maybe a couple weeks ago about repentance. Maybe you listen to a sermon from another preacher Maybe you are reading some sort of systematic theology or biblical theology book. And you are just overwhelmed. You are brought to your knees. Words can't utterly describe what you are feeling inside and what you see. That for just a a brief moment, God gives you a glimpse of his glory. But when tragedy hits, when hard times hit, we forget the glory. Even now, when sermons are being preached, when the preacher is preaching his heart out, we want to remove our minds from one state of glory to normality. Look at the baby. Look at this person getting up. Let me check my phone. Let me talk about something else other than the preached word, just as it has been preached. Every single Sunday, God gives you a glimpse through the preached word of his glory. 
And saints, how often, even after the sermon, just minutes, seconds, do we forget the glory? Friends, we are to echo the words of Moses every single day in Exodus 3.18. Please show me your glory. Every day, that should be our prayer. To live coram Deo. To live and see the face of God. Friends, I hope you take that warning. The second and last thing this event teaches us is the great hope that all believers have in Christ. It was Peter, James, and John that saw the glory of Christ. It was Elijah and Moses that were in the glory of Christ. The glory cloud covers all of the people that were on the mountain. And saints, what this teaches us is that all those who are near to Christ will one day be glorified like him. That all those who are close to Jesus Christ will be glorified like him. Peter and Elijah, or Peter, James, and John, they saw this glory. Elijah and Moses were in the glory. They themselves weren't glorified, but they were with the one who was glorified. And it teaches us, friends, that one day, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.21, the Lord will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's one day, the glory that Christ has will, like his, burst through our humanity. We will see him as he is. Why? Because we will be like him. All, that those, all those who are united to Christ in faith by the Spirit have a promise when we consider the transfiguration that from all eternity that the Lord's face will shine upon us. That's what the transfiguration teaches us. It teaches us something about Jesus Christ, yes. A great epochal moment in the life of Christ, is it not? But also it teaches us something about what we have in store for us in the life that's to come. So friends, when we think about our bodies and all the things that are failing us, when we think about all the things that hurt when we wake up in the morning, think about the glory that Jesus Christ will give to you on that final day when you will be transformed into the likeness of the Son. Let's pray.